and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Listeners, I've always considered myself a bit of a foodie. I enjoy traveling and getting to experience food from other cultures and then trying to replicate memorable dishes when I return to my own kitchen. I love entertaining and my heart is never fuller than when I have my family and friends sitting around my dining table enjoying food I have prepared. And so fiction that explores food or spotlights how we as humans connect over our shared love of food is particularly enticing to me. And that's exactly what my next guest has done. Tori Hashka is a published cookbook author who has appeared on TV for programs including The Today Show, Adam Leor's The Cook-Up, as well as on ABC Radio. Tori has written for a variety of publications, including The Times, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian. Her first novel, Grace Under Pressure, published in 2021, heralded a new genre of food fiction, combining her love of the gastronomic with her experiences of motherhood. And this year, Tori is back with another novel that explores these two themes once again. Called A Recipe for Family and published by Simon & Schuster earlier this year, it's a novel that examines modern motherhood, our expectations of ourselves and others, and how we navigate being mothers as well as income earners, how food connects us and what it means to be a family. An intelligent, insightful and relatable novel that will appeal to food lovers and readers alike. And I'm delighted to welcome Tori to the podcast today. Hi, Tori. Hello, Claudine. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I wanted to say congratulations on book number two. How are you feeling about it? It is very, it's delightful. It's delightful. But I think that for a lot of us who published books this year, they were obviously written, you know, in the years prior, in which if you had children, it was hard, you know. So it's hard sometimes to separate the product from the process. But now with a bit of hindsight, I'm able to look back and realise that, you know, a recipe for family is something that I'm really proud of, both for how we made it work and for what it is. Yeah, indeed. Now, as you mentioned, it it was essentially a a lockdown book. It was written during lockdown. And frankly, I don't know how you manage this, uh, particularly with young children. But I wondered if you could tell me how it all started and whether there was a particular event or spark that made you start penning this story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, A Recipe for Family is a continuation of the universe that I set up in my first novel, Grace Under Pressure, which is set on the northern beaches of Sydney and deals with, you know, some of the anxieties of modern day parenthood and also, you know, some of the humorous aspects of it. And I really wanted to pick up on some of the peripheral characters from Grace Under Pressure and explore what life was like for them behind, you know, the shiny facades and the, and the closed doors. But the instigating incident for A Recipe for Family is it's a story about motherhood and it's a story about au pairs and compromises and comfort food. So the au pair is really, you know, the um, the differing factor to Grace Under Pressure. Grace Under Pressure explored how you would manage, you know, trying to do it all Mm. with a group of women who ditched their disappointing spouses and started living together in a commune on the northern beaches of Sydney. Whereas in A Recipe for Family, Stella, who's our protagonist's solution to trying to manage the impossible ask of doing multiple jobs at the same time, is to bring an au pair. And an au pair is that sort of, um, it lives in such an ethical grey land where it's not quite family, it's not quite an employee, 
it really explores the idea of whether you can rent family. Mm. And there was something about that that was so intrinsically messy and murky that I knew that there would be a lot of grist for both conflict, miscommunication and the humour in it. And so that's how A Recipe for Family came about. Yeah, I want to talk about the all pair issue a little bit later on in the chat. But I remember speaking with Meg Bignall about her newly released novel, The Angry Women's Choir, earlier this year. And she told me that her novel was sparked by her own anger and feelings of frustration brought on by lockdown and the pandemic. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, is that an accurate description of how you came to be writing this book? And did it change from your first draft to finished product? Oh, gosh. Yes. In fact, what is published now is vastly different to the original draft of A Recipe for Family. I liken the early drafts of A Recipe for Family, which originally had, you know, different names and and had a whole character in it that's been deleted as time has gone. But there were four voices that were braided together and one of them has been pulled out. I liken that to, you know, for those of us who are cooks, if you are trying to cook a braise and you cook it hard and fast, Sometimes it ends up tasting bitter and tough. And the first draft of A Recipe for Family was definitely bitter and tough. And it was that way because, you know, that first year of lockdown particularly was impossible. Uh, I had two children under six at home. We didn't really have preschool for the younger one. Uh, Anyone who's got a six-year-old knows that they don't do independent learning particularly well. You know, there are a few of us in the family with chronic health issues, so there was a lot of anxiety about um, the prospect of contagion and just and a spouse who was on 14 hours of Zoom calls a day. So any writing that I was doing was between the hours of 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. and then from 7 p.m. or 7.30 p.m. until 10 p.m. at night. And it wasn't really an environment that was conducive for creativity. In fact, some of the pages in the earlier draft were just like angry Reddit streams <laughs> rather than, you know, rather than pleasant prose for it. So, but I think, you know, I believe that in most things that are humorous, there is a spine of discontent or anger that you're poking at in it in order for something to be truly funny. You have to find something that you're angry about. And what I was angry about in Grace Under Pressure and also A Recipe for Family was, you know, the invisible load that's placed on mothers these days and the completely unreasonable expectation. And that was all even before the pandemic. Mm. Before we talk about the story itself, there's no mention of the pandemic in the book, despite its pandemic origins. Was this deliberate, as in you expressly decided not to include any references to it in your book? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a good understanding, particularly in memoir rather than in fiction, that you don't write from open wounds, that you best write from scars for it. And particularly when it comes to the pandemic, a lot of us are still bleeding. So it's, you know, we I don't have the perspective to be able to appropriately write that time. I also think that most readers don't want to escape to a place that, you know, that can be triggering for them. So I made a very conscious choice to set a recipe for family pre-pandemic for it. And that worked for the plot as well, because, you know, an au pair comes traditionally from overseas and there were no au pairs arriving in those years. But what I dedicated the novel to the pandemic mothers and I lost a dear friend of mine earlier this year and it's also dedicated to her. And what I wanted to thread throughout the book was this sense of the pandemic almost as a dark punchline at the end. You know, if mothers were finding 
the mental and physical load of having to do two jobs, so challenging pre-pandemic, can you even begin to imagine what their lives are going to be like when you strip away their social networks, their ability to get outside help, and their access to educational institutions? Mm. So all throughout the book are sort of threaded the Beaches Mother's Facebook group posts, which act as a source of comedy, almost as like a Greek chorus that can touch type is how they're described in Grace Under Pressure. <laughs> and they are there as a way to highlight some of the anxieties of the time, but they're also there as a, a foreshadowing device. And in A Recipe for Family, these you know Mother's Facebook group posts are all asking questions that will become very pertinent come pandemic times, you know, about the anxieties of contagion and social contagion, about the impossibility of trying to do two jobs. Uh, What do you do when you mess up at work, which inevitably we are all going to do because, Mm. you know, as Elise, one of my favourite characters in the book says, you know, you get that on the big jobs. You know, we are all going to make mistakes. It's how you recover in the days afterwards that really count. And so from you know, even the banana bread recipes that are threaded through it. I wanted to put these little Easter eggs throughout the book where if somebody wanted to, they could feel a little acknowledgement of I know what you've been through Mm. and I also think that, you know, most of the mothers from the few last few years probably deserve some kind of, you know, Medal of Valor. Mm, Indeed. I wondered, for those who haven't read your book yet, if you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Yeah, absolutely. So it's centred around the lives of three women and there are three voices that are braided together in alternating chapters. So there's Stella, who we are first introduced to in Grace Under Pressure, and Stella is um, is a marketing manager for an upscale grocery store. Stella is uh, the mother of a rambunctious four-year-old, which some of us have personal experience with, and also a stepmother to a surly, discontented 14-year-old and with a husband who is frankly not pulling his weight at the moment, chasing chasing some shiny dreams and not pulling his weight. Stella then brings in, on the recommendation of some friends, an au pair as the Hail Mary pass of how to balance the impossibility of the children, the mental load and the work schedule that she has. And Stella's staunchly feminist mother-in-law, Elise, does not necessarily approve of this. Elise has bells ringing all over her of the concerns of exploitation, of whether a 19-year-old can really be trusted as a de facto parent, and there's a murkiness to it all, which is quite concerning for Elise. But like so many women we know, you know, in grandmother age, Elise is not quite ready to give up on her own life and, you know, be subscribed to um, to a secondary parenthood role. And so, you know, there's a lot of complicated issues between the three of them of, of what makes family, what can be done to help each other and what can be done when life gets hard. But I think the interesting character out of all of it is Ava, who is the 19-year-old au pair who arrives. And Ava has recently lost her own mother and so she arrives with a parcel of recipes that her mother has left her with instructions for life. And that was her mother's passing gift. And this was the sort of the food fiction element that I really wanted to weave into the book of, you know, what lessons can we learn from the food that we cook for others and what lessons can we pull from the dishes that have been cooked for us with love by other people. And so it's through a series of cooking expeditions and miscommunications where, you know, these women will come apart and then come together again. 
Looking at Stella's life, I felt like I was watching a train start off slowly and then gather speed until it was racing out of control before catapulting off a cliff. (laughs) For an intelligent, successful woman, she seemed to be paralyzed with fear all the time, worried about doing the wrong thing, and she was struggling with her identity, which seemed inextricably linked with her role as head of marketing for the company she worked at. And this is highlighted by the little vignettes from the Facebook page of the local parenting group. Tell me about that and why you wanted to explore this in the context of this novel. I think that there is a lot of unspoken anxiety in motherhood these days, and I think that the one of the problems is that we know so much these days and having access to both an incredible wealth of information and an incredible cacophony of voices of potential judgment on the internet means that it is very easy to lose yourself in that angry choir and to feel like you are always, you know, one inch away from being publicly castigated. So, you know, Stella's comes to the northern beaches of Sydney as an outsider as well, both a financial outsider and a social outsider. And she's desperately trying to claim her space within, you know, one of the shiniest echelons of Sydney. And so it's her outsider perspective, I think, that lets us, you know, see what is partly broken in some of these places. But it's also her outsider status that makes her feel wrongly inferior for it. But I also think that there is something that can happen both hormonally and socially in early motherhood where you can lose yourself completely and that women who once had such a sure sense of their role in the world are suddenly unmoored and, um, you know, as the weight of expectations pile upon them, it can be very easily easy, as you say, for that train to just roll away from before and before you know it, you're looking back and wondering, how did I get here? I was annoyed and frustrated by her inability to be more explicit with her husband, Felix, about expectations and the need for him to be more present in their family's life. And as you say, he frankly, he definitely wasn't pulling his weight. <laughs> and the fact that he was so self-absorbed and selfish, I mean, not only did Stella have a near on full-time job, but the full-time responsibility for managing the house and two children, an impossible situation, really. Something always has to give, doesn't it? It does. And uh, yeah, I agree. Felix is Felix is problematic. But really, in the scheme of problematic men that I have seen on the northern beaches of Sydney, he's he's a pretty good one, generally. No, I, and to be fair, my husband is, you know, is is a good one as well. But I think that Felix plays an interesting character and the dynamic between the two of them is intriguing because I don't think many of us realise what a bomb a child can throw in the middle of a relationship dynamic and and spend many years trying to sweep up those pieces afterwards and come back to who you once were. And I think Stella is still trying to be part of this, you know, Gillian Flynn wrote, you know, about the cool the cool girl myth And I think, you know, and there was a long paragraph that was deleted from an earlier draft of this, but I think there is also, you know, this sense of of what the cool mum is and the cool, and you know, and the cool mum is the one who who can just take it all on, you know, and pretend that it's fine and assume multiple burdens until generally they break for it because it is too much for one person to sustain. But I think everybody, you know, wants to think that they can do it all. Yeah. My next question was going to be, do you think that we as women believe we have to take this 
responsibility on ourselves. And did Stella believe that she had to do all of this herself to be a good mother or a good wife? I think so. I think so. And I think we need to have more honest conversations, not about the things that that we will do, but about the things that we want, Mm. you know, and be really honest about that it is impossible to do it all and that it's okay to cut corners and it's okay to insist that other people step up. And really, we were supposed to raise families in extended villages. And, you know, I think that's the main theme that comes back in all of my books is that, you know, it does take a village to raise children effectively. And without those traditional structures, where can we find that? And I think we find that through the relationships with the women in our lives. Tell me about Elise and your inspiration for writing this character. I mean, she was at the other end of the parenting spectrum as Felix's mother and the girl's grandmother, but she she too was grappling with her own identity, wasn't she? She is. And I, uh, both Elise in A Recipe for Family and Christine in Grace Under Pressure are probably two of my favourite characters. And I love writing very strong, ballsy, older women in my books, partly because, you know, I've been surrounded by them in my life. And I think there is just so much wisdom locked up in the stories of the women who have come before us. And I also really enjoy giving them strong careers, partly because that's a way as a writer that you can thread in some of sort of the political vegetables into your books. And so in Grace Under Pressure, uh, Christine's career as a feminist economist, let me talk quite explicitly about the economic role of unpaid labour in the world. And similarly, uh, Elise's role in Recipe for Family in sort of uh, science and formulations and being a um, chemical engineer, let me talk about the invisibility of women that happens so often in um, in scientific research and how there is an assumed male norm and how the world is designed for a male norm. And, you know, Elise keeps grating against that of, you know, wanting to point out that, that a woman's experience is vastly different. The other thing that I really wanted to do with Elise was to write a nice love story. You know, one of the criticisms that I had got out of Grace Under Pressure was that there, were no, there weren't enough nice men. And at the time I sort of wanted to say, well, show me some more nice men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've been very, you know, I have a wonderful father and I have I have a great husband, but I know that there are a lot of women who do not. And, you know, we probably need to talk more about the crisis of masculinity in Australian society and what is leading to the rates of violence that are happening behind picket fences. But what I wanted to give for Elise was a second chance romance and to write the story of a man who had made mistakes earlier on in his life and had realised what they were and was working hard at a redemption arc and wanted to be able to make amends. And so that was the most fun for me to be able to write of, you know, of thinking that life is long, you know, we can't do everything all at the same time, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen at a later chapter and so that blossoming romance I hadn't really written that many sensual scenes before so getting a chance to write (laughs) some of those for Elise um was great fun yeah and lovely I mean and yes it was a lovely part (laughs) of the story I really enjoyed that hopefully we can see that there there are some very nice men and one of the sexiest things that a man can ever say is how can I help 
Okay, so let's talk about Ava, the American au pair, who was grieving the loss of her mother and seeking more from life when she jumps on a plane and flies to the other side of the world to be an au pair for Stella's family. I'd never really thought much about the situation for au pairs, but when you think about what Ava and the other au pairs in the novel did to live with and be completely dependent on a strange family for their living situation for six months as a minimum, it's quite remarkable, brave and perhaps to some a little reckless, And I think what you've done so well in this story, Tori, is to highlight the inevitable power imbalance in these kinds of arrangements, which, let's face it, can be ripe for abuse, can't they? Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of Ava and her stories were influenced for me by our own experiences with an au pair. That happened in 2019 and our family brought one in to deal with a situation of a spouse who was overseas up to 80% of the time and one child who had a chronic health issue who needed to be frequently taken to hospital overnight. So I just needed another adult in the house to stay with the baby. And so, but it is a remarkable relationship of trust that you are stepping into with a relative stranger both ways, both her coming into our house and then me, you know, leaving my children with somebody who is young and um, relatively inexperienced. When it works well, it can be extraordinary. And when it doesn't, things can go very badly, very quickly. Um, And I was lucky that ours, ours was you know, was a positive relationship. But I heard a lot of stories from her about her friends who are au pairs. And, you know, there's some there's some not great stuff <laughs> that goes on that I really was intrigued and partly horrified. But so I wanted to explore some of that. And I also, I think you're right, the power dynamic is something that needs to be interrogated because, you know, it they are very young and very vulnerable. Then by the same token, the mothers who are there coming to help a lot of times are in a very vulnerable situation themselves. So at the end of the book, you know, we talk about how, you know, hurt people sometimes hurt people, you know, and it can be very, unless there's open communication and good boundaries, you know, this is a relationship that has the potential for for some calamity. I think we expect so much from carers of children and rightly so, But I wondered if it was right that these kinds of arrangements, we give responsibility for young children to young women who are not more than teenagers themselves. And and this was Elisa's concern, right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And part of my perspective of writing Ava was also influenced by my own years. And I was a nanny for sort of four years when I was doing my undergraduate and then my master's degree. And I look back on that time now with the perspective of a mother and, um, you know, I feel I feel like at the time I was a great nanny and I adored those children and I, um, you know, and nothing ever came to them. But there were things that I just had no perspective on at all as a 19-year-old. I remember one day accidentally tipping breast milk down the sink because I didn't realise why it had been left out and I was just cleaning up and my host mother just bursting into tears when she came home. And I, you know, would have no perspective as a 19-year-old of the sleep deprivation and the pain and the hardship that went in for her, you know, harvesting that, um, you know, in the hope that her her child would get some additional nutrition. And I think unless you really have been through it, there are things that you will never understand. So, you know, some of the episodes in the books are, of the miscommunications are, you know, comedy of manners, things of, of just that the women are, are talking at cross purposes and not really understanding. And then some of them have the real potential for harm in it because there is no greater responsibility than 
taking care of somebody else's child. I wonder, Tori, did you have to do any particular research for this book? Well, I think my own experience of hosting an au pair certainly fed into a lot. And I spent a lot of time talking to other host mothers and also to other au pairs for it. And so there's a lot of direct experience that's that's lived into that. And then the other bits of research that went into it was, you know, was the role of the food in the book. In Grace Under Pressure, there was a lot of food, but the food was a source of anxiety in the book. And it was about, about interrogating a culture of wellness and about, you know, that notion that can sometimes seep in in motherhood of, of you know, that nutrition and holiness and, and what lengths will you go to to create things that are pure and right for your children. Whereas what I really wanted to turn to in a recipe for family is what food brings us comfort and what is the taste of our mothers and what you know what is passed on generation to generation and so one of the greatest sort of triggers for that for me was a recipe book that I've inherited from my own grandmother when she passed which is all of her handwritten recipes in it and you know alongside them are small scrabblings of instructions of how to take care of a house and then you know I always remember the time that I spent cooking with her and sort of the lessons for life that would be passed down while you were making Christmas mints or while you were stirring crab apple jelly. You know, I think there is there is a lot of wisdom that is passed on while standing together at kitchen benches between women. And um, so I had a lot of fun, you know, particularly when I was stuck with writer's block sometimes, of going back to the kitchen and, you know, and sometimes the chapters in the book would start with the recipe, with the food that I wanted to talk about, and then the conflict or the incidents would would spiral from there. And in those days of lockdown, when we were at home with our children, you know, we spent a lot of time making dumplings and hand-rolling pasta and making banana breads and <laughs> funfetti cakes because, you know, baking was something that we could do easily with small children and keep them occupied. So I noticed that there were some recipes for the dishes referred to throughout the novel. They're included in the back. Are these particularly special to you or just the fact that, you know, they were they were recipes that you used during lockdown? No, a lot of them, a lot of them are recipes that have a very strong place in my heart. In one in particular, which Ava talks about, which are Pelmini dumplings, which are an Eastern European dumpling. And that's what she uses as a recipe from the advice from her mother of if you want to gather a community around you and if you want to show someone who you are, make them these dumplings. And it's and it's and it's not such a it's not an individual effort. In order to make palmieri, you really should gather a clutch of people around a table, A, because, you know, it's work and it's many hands make light of it, but also because it's such a social activity to be able to roll and pinch and fold dumplings and then sit down and share bowls of, you know, comforting carbs together. But they're an Eastern European dumpling that's sort of halfway between, they're sort of the cousin of a ravioli and a um uh, Asian soup dumpling and they were a food that I absolutely craved when I was pregnant with my son and my husband and I were traveling through New York and it was freezing cold and I was newly pregnant and intensely hormonal and feeling quite vulnerable and we stumbled upon Pelmi dumplings there and I just there was something about these bowls of you know they look like tortellini sort of pinched belly buttons with sour cream and poppy seeds that just provided instant comfort and reminded my husband a lot of you know the eastern european side of his family and so they've become sort of a a staple food within our family repertoire and there was something lovely about being able to give them you know an additional life in a story and introduce them to a wider audience i wondered if we could talk a little bit about your food blog etori.com 
How did that start? And did you ever imagine that it would lead to a career as an author? It started originally as and I haven't written on it in years, partly because the novels have gotten in the way, but it was very much a dossier of a life well lived. And it was, you know, before we had the children, my husband and I had had a couple of tragedies happen in our life. We lost his mother in some fairly horrific circumstances and we spent quite a bit of time travelling the world. The German culture has a fantastic notion of grief eating. It translates to grief bacon, but it's about, you know, what you do about, you know, eating for comfort. And so we set upon a project of traveling the world, trying to eat as many of the best restaurants in the world as we could, basically eating our feelings. And so the blog was a way that we sort of um, kept a dossier of those restaurants and I used to write them up. And it was also a way that we then, when we came home, would try and recreate some of the flavours and foods where from where we'd been to in a, in a kitchen. So it was sort of edible postcards. Um, and that blog was a great creative release for me and then ended up being sort of my entryway into publishing travel stories and recipes in my first book, A Suitcase and a Spatula. And then after that, I published a book of low carb recipes because um, I hadn't been very well and so I had chronic fatigue for years in my early 20s as well and so found that a low GI diet was probably the best way to be able to manage some of the fatigue issues so then cut carbs was my second book but eat Tory was a way of you know of being able to record those memories and I think sometimes when you write down an experience that has been precious to you it gives it an afterlife. So it means that you can always go back and revisit it. So Tori, given your experiences to date, I wondered if you had any tips for writers out there who are looking to be published or to write their first novel. I think the best advice that I was ever given is that writers write, you know, and if you want to be a writer, then you have to make it part of your daily routine for it. So just like runners run and they, you know, set aside time for it, I really tried when I was putting together Grace Under Pressure to carve out a section of my day that was, you know, sacred and precious for writing. And for me, that was after the children went to bed. Mm -hmm. And instead of sitting down to watch Netflix, I would set a routine and I promised myself that I only had to write 400 words. And then I could decide if I wanted to keep writing or if I wanted to go and do something else. But I would sit down, usually with half a glass of red wine, and I would write 400 words and then it became like muscle memory to me, that I knew that this was part of the day. These days I tend to do it first thing in the morning because my children sleep a little later. They now sleep until 6.30, which is nicer than the 4 a.m. that they used to start the day at. And so I will, I'll start usually at 5.30. And I'll open up my laptop and I'll write first thing in the morning for a little bit. And Sally Hepworth also talks about that, where she talks about the nifty 350, you know, that if you write 350 words first thing of the day, then anything else beyond that is a bonus. But at least it gets your wheels turning Mm. for it. So that would be my first piece of advice. The second one would be to always take notes on your phone. You will see things in the world, you will find things, you will have thoughts that will come to you and they will be gold to you at a later point in time. So to take them down just in a notes app on your phone and then when you're struggling for inspiration at some point, you can always return to them and that'll help give you some kind of you know trigger to step off. And the third one would be to get yourself a really good agent. So once you have a draft of something that you are happy with, 
try and find yourself an agent who believes in the work that you do and that you have a good connection with. I'm very grateful for the work that Catherine Drayton has done for my novels and put your trust in them and listen to their advice because the good ones really know what they're talking about. So, Tori, if there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this novel, what would it be? There'd probably be two. I'm going to be cheeky and say two. One is about the power of comfort food and that that when the world is hard, sometimes you really just need to turn to the foods that your mother's made you and allow yourself to be nourished and comforted by that and that there is great joy to be found in returning to the kitchen and making those for the people that you love and making them with the people that you love. So I really hope that anybody who reads the book is inspired to go and make Pelmiani dumplings with a gathering of their friends on a Sunday afternoon or to make a blackberry buckle and, you know, pour cream over the top of it and sit down and eat it all to themselves, you know, straight out of the bowl. And the second one is that I really wanted to shine a light on the on the work that's done by women in the dark. And I think there's a lot of it. And I think that what the pandemic mothers Australia in Australia and overseas did in the last couple of years is extraordinary. And, you know, that we still need to have that acknowledged. Yeah, fantastic. Well said. Are you working on something else at the moment? I am. I'm sort of slowly pottering away. One of the hangovers of the pandemic for me has been that I actually ended up with long COVID for it. So there's a few writers around the world who have got it. So part of that, my initial experience meant that I briefly lost my sense of smell and taste, which for a food writer was very unmooring. But you know, there's something in that which is was very interesting that makes you, you know, I think if you strip away one sense, then your others are heightened. And so I'm looking into, you know, doing a little bit more of a um, relationship novel about a chef who loses their sense of smell and taste. Now, if listeners wanted to connect with you, how can they do that? I spend far too much time on Instagram. <laughs> at Tori Hashka is where I am. I love getting messages from readers. I love talking about recipes with people. And so that's probably the best way to find me. Brilliant. Tori, A Recipe for Family was a compelling look at modern parenting, offering some sobering insight into how mothers in particular can be kinder to themselves and others and to remember that it does indeed take a village to raise a child. Thank you so very much for a wonderful read and for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you, Claudine. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.